Good morning and welcome to Laurel Heights, where you can expect preaching and teaching from the text of Scripture. I want to take a moment this morning and remind you of our website, lhmacallen.org. The sermons delivered here are recorded, and then they are located on that website. With most computers and tablets and smartphones, you can type in lhmacallen.org and access the content. Sermons, brief audio podcast, and all the standard information about our services and our location and special events. And very important, you can share all of that through whatever digital device that you have. Later today, this sermon will be uploaded and available on our website, lhmacallen.org. I looked at some statistics last night. Of the people who visit our website, 82% are from the United States, 10% from China, 3% from Mexico, 3% from the Philippines, and 2% from Nigeria. From May the 1st through May the 17th, there were 255 people who visited the website. Last year, over 9,000 visited the website. So what we do is not confined to these walls. And when you contribute on the first day of the week, those funds are used to help us take the gospel outside of this building and to people who need to hear the Word of God. Something else we do here, very important to our work, Bible classes, Sunday mornings at 9.30, Wednesday evenings at 7.30. We take up some section of Scripture and read it and study it and make applications, and you are invited and encouraged to be a part of that. We recently finished a study of the book of Hebrews and we are now into a study of the Gospel of John. In the New Testament, we find Christ on every page. This morning, I want to show you some of what we find about Jesus Christ. And the importance of this should be immediately obvious. You cannot get out of sin without responding to Jesus Christ, nor can you go to heaven without him. The book of Hebrews we recently studied in our adult class supplies us with rich instruction about who Jesus is and what he did. I want to take some of that this morning and highlight four powerful statements from the Hebrew writer about what Jesus did so that we could get out of sin, live good, godly, disciplined lives, and then go to heaven. Listen to the opening statement. You heard it a moment ago. Listen to it again in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's the opening statement in the book of Hebrews. And I want you to look at this part of it. He created the world. Young people, I don't know what you're being taught in your science classes. I know that in many academic campuses today, it is naturalistic evolution, not divine creation. Evolutionary theories that loudly object to the biblical account of creation. If you are a Christian, this is what you believe. He created the world. In three different places in the New Testament, this truth is clearly and boldly stated. In John 1 and verse 3, all things were made through him. In Colossians 1 and verse 16, by him all things were created. And then here in Hebrews 1 and verse 2, he created the world. If you think of Jesus as someone who came along later, these statements should correct that idea. He existed before his birth. Not just for a long time, <clears throat> but the Bible says eternally. In teaching the book of John, I'm saying that Jesus Christ is eternally, equally, and essentially God. In every sense of the word, divine. Unique and universally powerful. In the very beginning of everything, that power was exerted to bring everything into existence. John, Paul, and the Hebrew writer do not publish long essays or theological discourses about this. No, with impressive economy of words, they state what the evidence bears out. What did Jesus do in the beginning? He was there with God. He was God, and he created the world. What does that mean to you and to me? Here it is. The choice to obey Jesus Christ is not a personal preference for a religious practice that suits your tradition and interest. The genuine choice in your heart to obey Jesus Christ is not about liking one group over another. 
It isn't merely following through with a family tradition. No, if genuine, it is the choice to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the creator and put your life into the hands of the one who made you. Can you think of any better way to live than to put your life in the hands of the one who made human beings? Back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, when God said, let us make man in our image, who was God talking to when he said that? Let us make man in our image. The Holy Spirit was active. Jesus was there. So when I decide to obey Jesus Christ, I'm connecting my life to the truth of my origin. More than that, the divine persons who brought everything into existence. And of Jesus, Paul said, he holds all things together. I want my life to be there. What about you? Right here with this truth, there is reason to become a Christian and live your life under the original divine authority that has existed eternally. That perspective enriches our faith, motivates our commitment, and maintains our hope of our Savior. We can say He created the world. Everything God is, everything God does, everything God has, Jesus is, Jesus does, and Jesus has. After his life on earth, after his death for sinners, he was raised from the dead and he ascended to sit down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of God. I've never understood why people would follow a religious leader here on earth. Here on earth, above ground or below. But you see it and you hear it all the time. Religious cults and empires built and perpetuated around a mere human who died, but who didn't ascend to the right hand of God. In the Catholic system, there is the Pope. Let's be honest here with our Bibles open. He isn't Jesus Christ. He isn't the head of the church Jesus built. He isn't at the right hand of God. The Bible says nothing of God appointing any man here on earth as the universal head. Jesus is the head of the church and his location is at the right hand of God. When we think of Jesus Christ as he is described in Scripture... In our minds, we need to locate him at the right hand of God. Is there a place on earth that is equal to this? 
Is there a man on earth who can claim this access to God, this nearness to God? Jesus lives and sits at the right hand of God. He is divine and He is there where deity dwells. Look with me over in Colossians chapter 3, please. In the book of Colossians chapter 3 at verse 1. Now, this is the part of the Colossian epistle where you find practical lessons that derive from previous context. What Christians are to do, how Christians are to think, how we're to speak, speak how we are to react. But listen to how the section begins where all this is. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For if you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Where does your mind need to be? Where do I start in being a Christian? I get my mind where it ought to be. I set my mind correctly. If I've been raised from the waters of baptism with Christ and I want to seek the heavenly things and walk in newness of life, I have to keep my mind fixed on Jesus and where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Overcoming worldliness, maintaining a spiritual mature outlook and attitude, defending yourself against temptation, all of that depends on keeping your mind where it ought to be on Jesus who is at the right hand of God. What Jesus did for us is repeated several times by the writer of Hebrews, and in one place it is worded this way, He tasted death for everyone. He tasted death for everyone. Last Sunday morning I spoke of God's justice. And I described it as God's love for what is right and His hatred for what is wrong. Well, God's hatred of sin is a perfect hatred. And in His perfect expression of justice, the reality of sin meant something had to happen. There had to be a penalty. Somebody had to pay. And in God's system, the penalty had to be paid by a perfectly innocent victim. So God's grace was active, accompanied by His justice. And so it says here, by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. There's grace and justice. In one expression, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, the cross had two underlying divine principles, justice 
and grace. And over in Romans chapter 3, this is explained. In Romans 3, I'm going to start at verse 21. And we're going to listen for how God in His justice made a choice to express His grace in order for a penalty to be paid for us, for sinners. It starts out with the problem. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what does this mean for sinners today? It really means, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for some other remedy? Some other way to get out of sin? What are you waiting for? The just God was moved by His grace. Jesus paid the price. He died, though innocent, so that we could be forgiven. If you haven't been baptized, what are you waiting for? He tasted death for everyone. And then there is this. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. He became the source of eternal salvation. Let me stop there a moment. Not a source. The source. In the King James, the author. Not a author. Eternal salvation is fellowship with God that begins now. For the faithful, it continues in heaven with God, with Christ, in the presence of the Holy Spirit forever and ever. If that's what you want, there's only one source. Now the rest of the verse, He is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. He tasted death for everyone. And He became the source of eternal salvation. But to have what He died for us to have, we must obey Him. In fact, not only does the Hebrew writer tell us what Jesus did, He tells us what we ought to do and how we 
ought to live. Here in chapter 5, verse 9 is what that should say. He became the eternal source of salvation to all who obey him. Scattered throughout the Hebrew letter. What we are to do to be beneficiaries of what Jesus did. Obey him. Obey him daily because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Once you obey him initially in baptism, then resolve that you will never throw away your confidence. Instead, you will see to it that you do not fail to obtain the grace of God. And so, what is your condition before God right now? What are you waiting for, having heard the truth of the gospel? What is your response? This is the time when we invite you to come to Jesus while we stand together and as we sing.